This episode is brought to you by the Big Ears Festival, taking place from March 21st through 24th, 2024 in Knoxville and featuring an incredible range of performers from Herbie Hancock to Laurie Anderson to Kurt Vile. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I just, I think I can't deny the way that this era of music just got into the DNA of what I love in terms of a pop sensibility. Like this builds from a low, like the melody just keeps building. Like there's a great verse, there's a great pre-chorus, and then there's an incredibly catchy chorus. And it, in the way that the 80s was dipping into 70s, like there's, there's hints of funk, obviously R&B and soul, but it's very indelible pop. And I, I like to think of the song as like, when we write a song like, Can I Go On? Or when I feel like I'm always trying to conjure back to a song like the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Slater Kinney are luminaries of American underground music dating back to their founding in 1994. Their work as both a band and in Carrie Branstein's career as a comic actor have allowed them to since transcend that era and, arguably, also the indie rock genre. While aggression and abandon have been hallmarks for the band since their inception, their new work has more direct pop sensibilities and is befitting of a band with 30 years of creative output to build upon. Their new record, Little Rope, was released by Loma Vista on January 19th, 2024. We spoke to the two core members, Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein. Stars, 
The first song Tucker chose as being four minute for her was Jackie by Sinead O'Connor. Jackie left on a cold dark night Telling me he'd be home Sail the seas for a hundred years Leaving me all alone Life and death for twenty years I've been washing the sun With my ghostly tears Searching the shores For my Jackie I picked Jackie by Sinead O'Connor because when I heard that song, I felt like I was dropped into the world that Sinead had built, that I was suddenly um, in this world of this, um, you know, ostensibly widowed woman of a sailor. It was just, it felt completely immediate and her voice was so impactful. Um, I just, I felt like I was inside of the experience and I, I hadn't felt a song hit me that intensely. Um, I don't know if I've ever felt, felt like I'd been hit that hard before by a song, by a singer, by the arrangement, everything about it made me feel like I was inside of that story and inside of that experience. And I, it just made me really think about songwriting. It was such, such a brave thing to do. It was nothing like you would hear on like pop radio. It was nothing that people were doing and, you know, call other like college radio stuff was just, um, it could be really like bubblegum in a lot of ways, even the 80s stuff, you know, this was like, just pure songwriting in a way that um, I really loved and I thought was brave. And I thought she was an incredibly interesting artist. And I wanted to know everything about her as a, a teenage girl. When I heard the song, I was probably 16. Um, when the Lion and the Cobra came out, I, I just felt like, I was inside of like this other young woman's experience in a way that was um, just, it felt really true to me and pure. And um, there was nothing about it that was trying to sell me something. Instead, it was trying to communicate an emotional world to me. That's That just really called me um, to a, a sense of, of of writing something that felt really um, real and purposeful. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I loved it. I really related to it. And I really related to her as an artist and what she was trying to do with her music. I thought it was um, very unique and um, just, it really resonated with me. Um, you were already playing music at this time? No, I wasn't. I was in high school. I was really in music and bands. Um, I would go and see punk shows in Eugene where I grew up or I drive up to Portland. I did drive up to Portland and saw Sinead at the Arlen Schnitzer. Um, and it was, it was really powerful, you know, like nobody really knew who she was on that first tour. And, um, she was just, 
such an incredible singer, such an incredible performer. Um, so getting to see her live was, you know, it was, it was just life-changing, I think. I'm curious, um, you know, you went on to become a performer who, who, you know, played Europe and played a lot of festivals and things like that. Did you ever, um, you know, get a chance to meet her or perform with her? Unfortunately, I didn't. Um, I did get to see her um, in like the early 2000s when she was touring. She came to Oregon and she did this really interesting and weird show in Shampooey Park. Um, It wasn't at one of the regular Portland venues. It was like this drive into this very beautiful setting. But, um, you know... It was, I could, I think it was at a time when she was sort of trying to reconnect with her career and her performing. And honestly, after all that she'd been through, it, it just, it felt kind of distant in the way that she reacted to the audience. She was very distant. And that was sad to me because obviously at that point she'd been through so much already with, you know, this the thing that happened on, on Saturday Night Live and people just trying to destroy her career. I think it really traumatized her, um, you know, because she at that point seemed seemed to be kind of like really distant from people trying to connect with her and screaming and yelling and, you know, everything. It was like she was like she'd be like, thank you. Like just she just couldn't really go there after all she'd been through. Whereas when I saw her as a teenager, we were all, we were, she was a teenager too. And I was a teenager and everyone was screaming and losing their minds. And it felt like we were all doing the same thing. And there were no, the music industry wasn't in the room. Um, and I'm, I'm sad that it was for her the second time I saw her. You know, two things occurred to me um, when I saw that that was one of the songs that you wanted to talk about. Um, one thing was the song itself, which, as you point out, she wrote when she was a, a teenager or barely not a teenager, which, um, you know, I looked it up because I was like, is this traditional? Uh, because it seems like it could be, you know, uh, in the sense that uh, and she did perform other traditional songs, other folk songs. But it's very much um, I guess it could be the experience of a person her age or woman her age. But it has that uh, feeling of, uh, uh, you know. It could have been someone from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. Um, and also, uh, especially uh, at that point in her, her, her career, she, her voice, she had this access to this really like, you know, fifth gear or this like kind of uh, uh, power that, um, you know, obviously made a big impression on a lot of people. And it seems like uh, there's a parallel to be drawn there maybe with some of the, the power that you have in your voice. Um, and um, I'm wondering if maybe that had some kind of effect on you uh, as a singer. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mimicked her and I copied her so hard when I first started singing. I just, you know, obviously I had nothing like the gift that she had, you know, but but I loved that emotional power that she had, that she had, you know, a really broad gift um, that could emulate sorrow and loss 
and sadness and then just pure rage. The kind of like just outrage that I think was really tied to being in a female body. Um, that to me just rang really true when I was a teenage girl and it's something I've just really wanted to emulate with my voice in some regard and I, I did a lot of screaming and a lot of trying to get around to that and doing you know something that was aping what she did but you know I I think I eventually found my own path to you know what I can do with my voice but um you know she had just an incredibly rare gift um that was what that was just it was you know it was so moving um and it was so unique and um I just think that you know she didn't get enough credit for being um just a musical genius I think with her songwriting with doing something unique and with her voice as well she was really special The first song Brownstein chose as being formative for her was Automatic by the Pointer Sisters. sisters automatic I decided to go back to a fairly early point in my childhood in the suburbs very obsessed with radio pop music early era MTV and I suppose there there was so much pop music then I mean it the world was overflowing with pop but there was, and then obviously there were artists like Michael Jackson and Prince and in a year or two after the song, Madonna, but the Pointer Sisters, there's something about this particular song, how it builds, how Ruth Pointer starts in this low. I mean, I think when they first heard this song, they were almost done with this album, Breakout and they needed a couple more and they were going through all these extra tracks and they heard Automatic and they were like, this song's amazing. They are like, who's gonna sing this song though? And Ruth Pointer was like, I'll do the low part. And um, anyway, I just, I think I can't deny the way that this era of music just got into the DNA of what I love in terms of a pop sensibility. like. This builds from a low, like the melody just keeps building. Like there's a great verse, there's a great pre-chorus, and then there's an incredibly catchy chorus. And it, in the way that the 80s 
was dipping into 70s. Like there's there's hints of funk, obviously R&B and soul, but it's very indelible pop. And I, I like to think of the song as like when we write a song like Can I Go On? Or when I feel like I'm always trying to conjure back to a song like the Pointer Sisters, essentially. Like just something that has, it's so wordy, this chorus. And of course the Pointer Sisters are amazing singers. Like I'm a punk singer. I don't hold my notes for very long. So there's something about this song in the chorus where they're just packing those words in. And that's, but it's very catchy. Like you don't lose, um, you don't lose anything by it being wordy. Um, and it it has this kind of like it, the, it, the percussive quality to the singing that I think I reinterpreted in my own sort of punk and punk pop way from the Pointer Sisters. Like I don't because I never really liked traditional pop punk, and so I always think like where do some of my like penchant for catchy melodies come from? And I just realize it's from this era of music. And so that's why I picked this song, because I thought this is a very honest version of what influenced me. Well, uh, you know, I I have been saying for a long time to anyone who will listen, which is a very small list of people that, um, and this does not exactly (laughs) qualify, I guess, but uh, like 80s R&B, tremendously underrated. Everyone will like, yeah, you know, 70s soul and 70s R&B. It's like, let's let's not sleep on the 80s. And, you know, the, the Pointer Sisters had a much more complicated uh, you know, I mean, they were produced by uh, uh, Richard Perry, who was a big pop producer, and you know, they had big pop hits. So it's not exactly what I'm talking about, but but yes, I mean, this this stuff is great. It's great pop music, and and people um, um, ignore it or don't embrace its value at their uh, the peril of their souls or something like that. I think so. I think so too, and I think this song more than some of their bigger hits. Like more than you know, jump for my love. Uh, this song actually, you can hear it as a predecessor for like later dance and alternative dance music. Like it has like great guitar, great funky bass line, very like indelible synth lines, like. I I see this one as as sharing more commonalities um, than potentially some of their bigger pop hits. I mean, this song was big, but because it's the Pointer Sisters, they actually had songs that were bigger than this. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I do think that the 80s had some great R&B. I think people get hung up on production, but now because, you know, we're in such an area uh, or an era of pastiche, you know, people borrow from the 80s as much as they borrow from the 70s and the 90s. So it's not as foreign, I think, of a sonic vernacular as it might have been like, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, like people sort of, you know, denigrated the 80s. But now I think people pull from it what was really valuable, you know, which um, there was a real clarity, I think, of what people were trying to do like this almost like to me, it's kind of this pure pop era. And I, I like that. And I think melodically, it has some of the best pop moments like this era. And Pointer Sisters were just, you know, right at the center of that with their great voices. And uh, obviously they were working with amazing producers and and songwriters, but 
um, yeah, I think I'm always trying to harken back to this sense of melody and, and, um, but obviously very much reimagined uh, and, you know, hindered by my, my own uh, lack of capabilities, but fully, fully drawing for them. Um, I'm curious, does, does this kind of production sound or this kind of musical sound, um, you know, I mean, uh, some of your own recent music has had a little more of a, uh, a produced feel or, you know, uh, a little bit of more of a synthesized sound than like some of the earlier records. I mean, is this maybe like a secret root of that or is it just unrelated, incidental? I mean, I think there are arguably better synth eras than, than 80s, but I also think that I am not I'm not opposed to the to the synth, especially in this this song. But, you know, I mean, Donna Summer to like late 70s, but even 80s, you know, she worked hard for the money like this. This is just so embedded in me, I guess, that um, I, you know, kind of a, a funky clav or, a, you know, that I, I can't deny. I can't deny some of that, that 80s stuff. Um, so maybe subconsciously. Maybe subconsciously it's in there. The second piece of music Tucker chose as being essential to forming her sensibilities was Crazy by Patsy Cline. Crazy I'm crazy for feeling so lonely Yeah, so I picked Crazy by Patsy Cline. Um, I think the reason I picked this song is to talk about singing specifically and how a certain style of singing can really take the listener on a journey. Um, Patsy Cline was one of those singers that rolled in so much into her voice. Um, and I think that this song in particular is probably my favorite song that she sang. Um, and I think that, you know, she, she kind of starts the song in a sort of mournful place. Um, but she rolls through a lot of different emotions. You know, there's... I think that, you know, by the time she gets to the word worry she's there's like uh, feelings of frustration and and anger at herself that she's feeling all of these things and and you know that that you feel a kind of female rage from her that i think is really makes the song unique when she sings it i mean of course willie nelson wrote the song and is an incredible songwriter but um he is a much more relaxed take on the song he's got a little bit of almost like a 
sense of humor when he sings it. Um, that's, you know, kind of lets the, lets the listener off the hook in a way that Patsy Cline absolutely does not, that she is taking us through every single emotion that she feels, um, you know, just the absolute, um, highs and lows of, of being in love with someone who, who doesn't really love you back. Um, and I think that it just imprinted on me very much as a singer um, that I, I, I loved the, the drama in her voice. And I loved the way that she took us on that ride um, as a listener because it was, it was so cathartic to me to, to, to listen to her sing and to try and sing along with her when I was young. She seems to have had one of those voices that really spoke to people and in particular spoke to women. It's like, I, you know, I'm, I know so many women who like, if you, you know, like Patsy Cline comes up and there's this, you know, ah, Patsy Cline. It's like, there's this, this thing um, that she seems to really uh, connect to people in a way that maybe a lot of singers just don't. I think that I spent some time in, when I was in Olympia in college um, doing some, I, I would just go to record stores. I would, I would listen to things. I would think about singers. And I think I bought like the greatest hits of Patsy Cline in a record store in Olympia when I was in college, um, you know, because I, I started thinking about singing and, and, different singers and, and how they approached it. And she was someone who just really, to me, I thought was one of the most incredible singers ever. Um, because she, she did just, you know, brought this amazing emotionality to her voice. That was, um, was never, was never easygoing. It was never, there was never any, um, any pretense of, of thinking about being entertaining or easy listening and her voice to me, it was all drama and really high stakes. And I guess that's, that's kind of what I related to as a singer. You. The second piece of music Brownstein chose as being essential to forming her sensibilities was Every Day by Buddy Holly. Every day it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. Love like yours will surely come my way. Hey, hey, hey. Every day it's a getting faster. My second song is Every Day by Buddy Holly, and I discovered this song. Obviously, this song predates my first song, but I discovered it after The Pointer Sisters because I discovered it on the Stand By Me soundtrack. And I feel like soundtracks, especially in the 80s and 90s, were just these real unsung heroes of exposure for people. Uh, because it, it married music with 
images and these albums. You would, I would just buy these albums and discover music that wasn't really being played on the radio at the time. You know, this the Stand By Me soundtrack had Del Vikings and Buddy Holly. And when I heard this song, I when I was thinking about, well, first of all, when I heard this song, I loved it. It's, I mean, it's really probably one of the greatest songs of all time. It just, it's sort of perfect. It has this just clarity to it and sweetness. And like, it just, it's like the the purpose of it, the intention of it just seems so distinct and pure in this way. Uh, but I also was thinking about, I almost put the Ramones on, but then I realized, no, Joey Ramone is just doing Buddy Holly or Gene Vincent. Like to me, there's, there's so many versions later iterations of Buddy Holly, including in my own singing, like starting with like, I want to be your Joey Ramone, where I'm like, wow, wow, in the chorus. And that's like a much harsher version of like, hey, 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 you know, all that stuff. It's like, that's just every punk, you know, like to me, I just, I can hear Buddy Holly over and over again and what people sort of try to do, you know, and it's, it's almost like there's, it's a little attitude, but just, but without sort of teeth. And then of course I tried to put more teeth on it, but you know, I feel like his is like the 19, the 1950s version of, of a little bit of swagger, you know, that, and I mean, he was more influenced probably by, by country than by early R and B, but obviously everything's sort of borrowing from early R and B. So there's certainly predecessors, but there was just, yeah, just the sweetness to to this song that I really loved. And I, I love the lyrics. Um, I love the repetition in the lyrics, you know, coming back around. Um, it feels like you're just sort of taking a stroll with with him. And I love the bell piano on the song and the instrumentation, just the, the knee slap, I think, is what is constitutes percussion. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of sort of rudimentary perfection in this song, which I think is always something to aspire to, uh, you know, that you don't need a lot of elements to connect with, uh, a listener, you know, you, you just need intention and heart and in like a really perfect way. This song has that, uh, but I definitely draw from it vocally because I, I drew from people who were copying him like Joe Romo. Oh yeah, I, and I totally hear you. It's it's like, you know, the the hiccup thing. It's like, uh, it's like you know, nineteen fifties uh, swagger that won't get you kicked out of your girlfriend's house on prom night or something, right? It's like nice swagger, you know. Um, yeah, it's nice swagger, and later artists definitely, you know, made it made it a little more menacing. Uh, but I think it still has that. I think the intention, though, even if you your voice has a little more rawness to it than Buddy Holly's voice, there is something that is a little bit nice about it still. You know, it's like, it feels like you're trying it on a little. And I think that so much of early Slater-Kinney songwriting was about 
like stepping into someone else's shoes and trying on what it meant to be a singer or what it meant to be a rock star, what it meant to be on stage. And there's something in that, that, that little hiccup, as you call it, that little sort of stutter that is that. It's like, am I, am I fully committing to this or am I just playing around? And I think that's such an interesting role when you're first starting out in music is you don't really know and your songs are kind of trying to prove it to yourself and the listener like whether you belong here and there I think that that sound that that vocal stutter is a real like distillation of that a real embodiment of, of those steps you take as you're you're learning more about yourself as a performer than a roller coaster love like yours will surely come my way hey 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 love like yours will surely come my way what do tony conrad reese chatham captain beefheart and faust have in common each have legendary recordings on the table of the elements record label Long out of print, these and other records from the label are available again with the Table of the Elements Discovery Box, available only at WithinThings.com. Within Things Curiosity Shop has partnered with the label to help continue their legacy of connecting sound with listeners since 1993. Visit WithinThings.com and search Table of the Elements to learn more. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection created by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from their collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org, or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. The final piece of music Tucker chose as being crucial to her was Cloud Busting by Kate Bush. I still dream of Oganon. I wake up crying. You're making rain, and you're just in reach. When you in sleep escape me, you're like my own. Yes, so. I picked a um, a different Kate Bush song. I know everyone's been listening. We're talking about soundtracks. Everyone's been listening to Running Up That Hill from Stranger Things. And I think it's great that she's finally getting like a nod from so many generations. And I think that song, you know, hit um, the number one charts in the UK for the first time, like 30 years later. Um, and I think that's so cool and so amazing um but i just want to make sure that we talk about the rest of her catalog because um 
She was such an important writer to me when I was young. I mean, I, I, I went to the record store in Eugene, the record garden. I collected all of her records. I was just, it was just like such a total find, a treasure to me of this woman who wrote music and she wrote albums like she was writing novels. You know, like Cloud Busting to me is, it was so different than other songs. Um, it was, you know, it was like a science fiction story that she's writing here, you know, like, I can't hide you from the government. Like, what is she talking about? Like, I was just like, my, I just, it was so fascinating to me. And I wanted to be, I wanted to understand the story that she was telling because she was so completist about it, you know, like, um, it was very sad. I mean, obviously it's about her father, but also like, was he like a spy like was he like did he invent the atomic bomb like I just it was like really mysterious and that was really exciting to me as a young person as a writer because she was like a ferocious intellectual with her music she was like no compromises I'm not going to talk about like you know some guy that I'm like trying to get with. Cause that's my goal in life. Like uh, women were like brainwashed to be in the seventies and eighties, you know, like she was talking about this relationship she had with her father and the effect on her family of his scientific work, you know, also sidebar, my father also kind of a famous scientist. So I don't know if there's a connection there, but it really, really spoke to me because it was, you know, it was just doing something else with your music that, again, was like creating a world um, that was emotional, intellectual. And, um, you know, it just it just it just spoke about storytelling in a way that that gave women like full license to write about absolutely everything and and to just completely be taken seriously as an intellectual and in the 1980s, in the music industry in America, that just wasn't on the table, you know? I mean, I loved Madonna. I loved what, you know, she did for music. She was so bold, but she was so pretty all the time, so sexy, you know? And I didn't really relate to that. Um, I, I, I really wanted to find a writer that was like, I'm really about writing music and, and I'm really about telling stories. And, um, you know, and I, I just found that with Kate Bush. I, I loved her music and I bought all of her albums and um, I love the instrumentation. It was really different. You know, it's like very um, orchestral with this song, you know, all of the violins coming in. So, um, so yeah. And I also think this song was in another, as long as we're talking about soundtracks, this song was in, I think, a recent soundtrack as well. Um, it's like in a recent movie about Palm Springs. Does anyone know oh, what I'm the, talking the about? The movie Palm Springs? With Andy yeah. Samberg, that movie? Yes, it's, it's in that Springs. movie too. So I was like, good for her.
The final piece of music Brownstein chose as being crucial to her was Tragedy by the Wipers. This might be the one song that of all the ones you chose, the word I'll see an analog between the sonic nature of this song and our band. Uh, I know Corin was also influenced by Greg Sage and the Wipers, as was pretty much everyone who came out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the Wipers started in 1977 in Portland, and if you, whether you're, you've listened to Beat Happening or Unwound or Nirvana, or Slater Kinney, you have definitely heard the influence of Greg Sage um, upon the Pacific Northwest, which therefore means probably upon the world. But uh, I, this is from their Is Israel uh, album. And also it goes back to Buddy Holly. Greg Sage is doing the, the hiccup singing in this song, uh, their guitar, the guitar playing is very distorted it's very minor key uh, but he's and he is singing about dark existential despair and feeling like an outsider uh feeling like a loner all of the sort of ennui of our our 20s but also i think very familiar to anyone who's writing from the pacific northwest i think we we do feel um, and this is actually a name of one of their songs kind of at the edge here. The, the Pacific Northwest in particular, you know, maybe less so now that we're, you know, especially Seattle is, is just like tech town. But, you know, it, it was a place where people came to get lost and to be forgotten and to kind of to, to sit at the far reaches of our of our country and of our shores and uh, to be under gray skies and um, surrounded by trees and I think that is just the landscape from which this band, my own band, was was created, and that um, that sense of, I guess, annual continual sorrow that that, that hangs over uh, our streets. I think um, I can hear that in in the wipers. I hear that. In when the notes are sour and when his voice is gravelly and when the guitar is rumbling and in the driving nature of it that's tinged with sadness, you know, that that is this song and that's the wipers and, and that's where we come from. And uh, for sure, this song, uh, it, it also has that catchiness that I love, right? Where it's with the marriage of, of dark, lyrics with something you can sing along to, which, um, you know, we return to over and over again as songwriters, uh, that, that duality where you can, you can have people singing along to pain and by singing along together, hopefully the pain is a little lessened. Uh, so yeah, definitely an influential song for me, an influential band. Well, and and the guitar um, playing, I believe the the critical term would be churning, um, just the 
That's the critical yes. term. Yes, just churning guitar. Yes, it is. I would say probably um, just lots of downstrokes and, uh, but, but yeah. I mean, it, that's sort of I guess pretty common in punk. But I think the the notes and the melancholy. It's more than just churning to me because it it feels more dimensional than that with with the wipers. Like it it has more colors to it, I think. Um, you know, I have um, been have heard about, have heard, have known about the wipers for a really long time. Uh, you know, as have you, and um, you know, I don't think we're alone in that. But it's like I wonder why isn't Greg Sage more of um, like a national hero. Why is he still kind of this, you know, uh, s- somewhat regional secret? Why hasn't, um, you know, uh, Rick Rubin picked him up on his heavily yogified shoulders and like, you know, made him make a bunch of records or something like that? Um, I don't know. I mean, why? Um, not that you have to have a good answer for this goofy question, but. Um, why, why is, uh, uh, Greg Sage not on, uh, you know, I don't know, the punk rock Mount Rushmore or something like that. You know, the longer I've been doing this and obviously Slater Kinney are more, I suppose, well-known than the Wipers, I guess we are, but we are still a band that's not for everyone. Not everyone is supposed to be in the limelight, like not everyone is supposed to be mainstream. I think that's okay. Like it's such a a currency that we've all moved towards, you know, the middle pop culture, uh, you know, just notoriety, exposure. And I just don't think that's where we all need to be or that that's not everyone's role as artists. Of course, I wish more people knew about the Wipers or Greg Sage, and sometimes I wish more people knew about Slater Kinney, but that's that's just not who we are, you know? And what makes us an interesting band is that there's something weird about us, something that doesn't match the tenor of, you know, what is what is popular. And I'm, a, I'm okay with that. I, I'm all for those unsung artists. Uh, I I think I I value them now more than ever. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.